You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 125. Mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with John O'Sullivan, founder and CEO of Changing the Game Project, where he shares his perspective on the current state of youth sports. John explains how youth sports have been adultified and how the expectations and results are defined by parents and not just by having fun and finding joy competing within their sport. After all the years of coaching and extensive studying, John has found a formula on how to coach the heart of the athlete. What would more wins, higher productivity, or quicker recovery mean for you? NeuroPeak Pro optimizes human performance by working to promote balance within the autonomic nervous system. Used by the world's elite athletes, this training program is now available to you at home. Cutting-edge neuroscience and technology allows you to strengthen your brain remotely, anytime, anywhere. Schedule your evaluation and get started with your brain training today. Visit NeuroPeak Pro and receive a 10% discount by using the promo code GRANTPAR. If you're interested in a full-body resistance training system to achieve your athletic and fitness goals, the Mass Suit from Juke Performance is your answer. The Mass Suit is a full-body resistance training suit that you wear during your exercising or sports-specific training to enhance your speed, strength, power, agility, and endurance. You are fully mobile, and it's great for plyometric and high-intensity training. It engages all muscle groups simultaneously and increases to a 50% caloric burn. Check out the Mass Suit at jukeperformance.com and other fitness-related products, and make sure to use the promo code GRANTPAR, one word, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-R, for your 10% discount. Hey, John, how are you? Grant, how are you? Thanks for having me on, man. Oh, man, I'm doing great, and uh, it's an honor to have you on my show for many reasons, just what you're doing um, for youth sports and the message that you're putting out there. And it's just, you're impacting, I think everybody's lives from athletes, coaches, parents, um, society. So I'm really excited today to talk about the challenging dynamics within youth sports and also how to coach the heart of the athlete. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to pick your brain on these topics. Yeah, man. Well, let's dive in. I love it. All right. Well, let's, uh, as I always say on every show, um, one of my favorite topics is talk about mental toughness. So when you think about being mentally tough or mental toughness, what does that mean to you? You know, I think I look at it twofold. Number one, we often look at mental toughness just from an athlete perspective, and that's the ability to deal with adversity and overcome setbacks and, and reframe um, the voice in your head into, okay, how do I overcome this? How do I get through this? How do I move on? How do I focus on the process? For me, that's mental toughness from the athlete perspective. What I spend most of my time doing though is working with coaches. And when coaches come to me and say, can you make our athletes mentally tough? My first question is, well, are you creating an environment where they can be mentally tough? And that the way they answer that usually depends on whether we'll work together or not, because some people say, no, no, I, it doesn't matter what I do. Do you just fix them? And that's not going to be a good fit. Right. And, and so, but when they are taken aback and say, wow, I never really thought about it that way before, 
now we have something to build upon. So mental toughness, you know, from a coaching perspective is an environmental issue that you allow it to happen or you crush it. Um, and so we got to stop blaming our athletes all the time. I love that creating, creating culture, creating an environment. And, and, you know, John, I've had, I've done a hundred and something shows and I asked that question and, and I know my listeners have heard me say this a lot, but there hasn't been a person yet that has actually given me that, that, that kind of answer. And that's the thing about when you think of mental toughness and grit and confidence, we all know what it means, but we all have a different internal representation. And I think creating an environment is, is huge. And, and when, if we're going to dig deep, deeper on the subject of mental toughness, um, is there, can you share a specific time either with yourself, you know, as this journey going through um, what you're doing, changing the game project, or even as an athlete or as a coach, or maybe some athletes you've coached, like, could you share a specific time where you had to be mentally tough or somebody that you worked with was mentally tough? Oh, I mean, dozens of, of times for sure. In my own athletic journey, um, when I was 18, I had a really, really bad injury, a, a tib fib fracture, you know, one of those ones that you see on TV and the, nowadays one. they go, yeah, we're not going to show that. And yeah, so I had one of those. Um, and the comeback from that was just, it was such an interesting time because I, you know, that's when I realized I love soccer, right? And that I was willing to do the work. It came back to play and, and play in college and, and play pro for a while. But that comeback from that, you know, I, I think injuries are such an interesting thing because the physical recovery and the mental recovery are two different things. And we're so focused on the physical timeline of return to play from that ACL injury, right? Six months, eight months, nine months, whatever it is. And we don't pay attention to the mental return to play, which is usually well over a year. And we're starting to see our professional athletes now, you know, in the NBA, especially say, you know what, taking the whole season off, not coming back. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm really ready to come back. And, um, and so that's really interesting. And so I think about the physical comeback for that and how long that took. And it was really a couple of years, but the mental, I, I mean, I still think I deal with mental scars from, from that. I never really dealt with them when I was younger. I think it's huge that you bring this up and, and, and I can, I can connect with what you're saying. Not only did I have a similar injury, not only to, to my, to my leg, but I also a bigger in injury that set me way off the course for almost a couple of decades. And it was a career ending injury. I, I played football as a quarterback. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a compressed fracture in my left hip. I had two hip replacements. Mm -hmm. um, and so because I didn't do the work and I didn't actually share what was going on inside my chest, um, I, the recovery took me so much longer. And I think when we, like you said, you're talking about the physical aspects, how does a, how does an athlete come back from your type of injury or any injury and have confidence in their body? Like, yeah. Is, is it going to happen again? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the, I mean, certainly, you know, when you're a football quarterback, can I take that first big hit, right? As a soccer player, right. That, that first tackle will, you know, will I go in hard? Will I, you know, will I believe that I'm going to be okay here? And it's such a, yeah, it's such a, a difficult thing. Will my knee hold up, you know, to the cutting, to this, to that. And, yeah. you know, I think the most devastating thing I, I think is when you see that athlete coming back from that ACL and then right before that clear to play, they do it again, or they do it to their other knee, you know, and, and, 
those are the ones that just gut you, you know, and, (laughs) and you're just like, Oh my, my goodness. And I mean, one of my great lifelong friends was a U.S. national team player who had a knee injury right before the 2000 Olympics, uh, had an ACL injury 10 days before the 2002 world cup and another ACL injury five months out and missed the 2006 world cup, you know, and it was just like, you know, just that, you know, I, when I look at how he views those injuries in his life and I, I mean, it's just incredible, you know, and he had this amazing career and yet also at the same time, he missed the three biggest events of his life. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, and it's, you know, when you think about, uh, Injuries like that, and again, don't want to like. I want to stay on topic here, but um, Alex Smith, uh, mm-hmm. honestly, a quarterback. I don't know if you've seen his return, but if if you've seen that that small documentary that they've done on him, I, I haven't seen his return. I know I know about the injury though. Yeah, it is. He he's the ultimate warrior. I mean, yeah. when you watch this, you know, half an hour documentary on his comeback. Uh, I can only imagine like what he has gone through. I mean, he almost died. He almost lost his leg. I mean, all this stuff. And he's, he's running again. He's dropping back. He's, he's being active. He's almost there. Yeah. What's going through. How, 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 how has he healed those wounds or are they ever going to be healed? Because I know when I hurt my leg, I'm 46 years old. I still have dreams of getting hit mm-hmm. or I get, I have dreams of actually playing football with my metal hip and dealing with that hit. And I'm yeah. 46 years old. This is the decade. So I can only imagine how is he repairing that, that those mental scars? Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's what I'm talking about here. I, I would say my, my, um, my sports injury dreams these days are more around mountain biking and skiing, sadly, but uh, you know, some other broken bones, but um, you know, I, it, that's exactly it. And that's what I'm talking about that when we're looking whether we're a parent or a coach helping an athlete come back from injury, you know, this, this physical, okay, your knee's strong, go back out there. They are not ready. They, they will be well behind where they were when they got hurt and helping them get through those moments of um, how I, I'm not sharp. I'm not mentally sharp. I'm not quick. I'm not, you know, my touch is bad, whatever the sport is, right. That's part of the comeback. And we really have to say, you know, no, your timetable is not six months, it's a year. And so yeah, you're back on the field here for three or four months. But you're not back yet. Right? You're not back yet. You're not back fully whole yet. And and we need to spend more time coaching that part of it as well. Yeah, the inside out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into your awesome project, changing the game project. Um, We spent a little bit time on that. But you know, for someone who's changing the game for the youth, again, no pun intended, what was the trigger? What was the pivotal moment where you decided to, to create this, this project? What was that thing that made you to, to go all in? You know, I, 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 I talked about this in my TED talk as there's never just one moment, right? But there's maybe that trigger moment that brings it all together. And in my TED talk, I talked about this moment watching my daughter at the time six years old playing soccer and you know it's like a great six-year-old soccer game right it's sunny no one's angry everyone's positive the kids are making mistakes and everyone's okay with it and then right next door was just the 
antithesis, this 10 year old boys soccer game and everyone's screaming at the kids and they're yelling at the coach and they're yelling at the referee who's like 13. Right. And they're, everyone's going crazy. And I'm going, wow, what's, what's wrong with people? Like, why do people think that's good or that's right? And, uh, <laughs> and does anyone on my field want to go there in a couple of years? And that was kind of this moment of like, maybe I can help and share. And it started with writing a book called changing the game, which is really for parents on how to help your kids in sports. And then I realized that, um, you know, it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing for people to learn that you've written a book. And so I started a blog around it and that kind of became changing the game project, which has since morphed into way of champions podcast. And, um, you know, I just published another book in December. And so, you know, a couple of books and podcast, you know, I think I'm a little bit ahead of you, but 170 something podcast episodes and that. <laughs> just a lot of different stuff. It's it's great. You know, it's great to just get out and connect with people. And I just wanted, I felt like I wanted to be certainly not the web MD for sports, but a trusted resource where, Hey, I can go there and I know that what's on this website is vetted right? That this information has some backing and it's backed by the research in sports science or psychology or whatever the field. Cause I didn't feel like there was a ton of that out there. I thought there was a lot of opinion. And so, you know, I, I, I was trained as a historian. And, and so, you know, when you, you know, get degrees in history, you're like, you know, you're not ever allowed to have your own opinion. You just have to back it up. And so right. <laughs> I, that's how I've always written. And it seems to have worked well in the sports world, uh, for sure. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a gentleman by the name of uh, John Torine. Yeah. Yeah. John, uh, he, you know, he was the strength, the head of strength and conditioning for the, for the Colts for years. Um and he's doing something a little bit similar to what you're doing, mm -hmm. but he talks about the moment where the shift for him was like when he went to, you know, his, um, his children's uh, baseball game and yeah. from afar as he's walking, he's seeing this, like this scuffle. And then, then there's just a full out brawl. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember the exact story. If it was coach against coach, coach against uh, an umpire or a parent against a coach, but there was, you know, there's this recklessness. And yeah, so I mean, does it even matter who it was? Right. right. It's still a nine-year-old baseball game. Why are you fighting? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so I can only imagine. Um, I think it's it's you know it's it sucks that we have these things that that catapult us in into this what we're doing, but um, but we got to make sure this stuff uh, gets rectified. Mm -hmm. So, and I love what you're doing now. You know, when you think about all the different things, now I don't know if the word is if I can use this word destroying, but, you know, from your perspective, like what do you think is the major contributor of destroying youth sports or at least changing the landscape of youth sports? Cause I know there's a ton of dynamics out there. Well, I, I certainly think that, you know, pre COVID the fact that youth sports is this 18 to $20 billion industry means that there's a lot of momentum with preserving the status quo. And so anytime you're going to try to change that, it, it's going to take a while to turn that ship. And um, so, so I think that's one of the big things, right? And, and because it's become such a big business, sadly, and not everywhere, there's amazing coaches, there's amazing programs, there's amazing, you know, leagues that do it right. But in many cases, Youth sport has become the word that I use was adultified, which it's become about the the values and the priorities of the adults 
and not the children playing. And so adults are about achievement. Adults are about um, getting ahead as quickly as these are adult values, right? right? Not not just hanging out with your friends, not just enjoying it for the sake of enjoying it. Adult, the adult world is I gotta win because if I don't win, then I'm the I'm the loser, right? Um, if I didn't get the sale, then I failed and whatever. And yet, sport is about the process and developing and 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 children's sport especially is about you know making it competitive. Like you go to an elementary school and watch the pick up soccer game or football game at recess, the kids don't stack the teams. They make them as fair as possible, right? right. And if one team's killing the other, they change the teams. But as soon as adults get involved, what happens, right? Like we want to stack the teams, right? Four kids in a ball, what will they do? They'll play a game. Four kids, a ball and an adult, what will they do? They'll set up a drill, right? And it's like, and and so these are adult values, permeating into children's sport that's by all the evidence and all the research very very unhealthy for the children participating and how do we know that well because most of them quit right exactly and i love that word adultified and you know i don't know if you know i have another show with with jake Plummer, a former all pro quarterback mm -hmm. and he's super i mean he's got a stance and, and i'm and i'm with him on specialization and he talks about, you brought up recess. It's so funny. He tells a really great story about the, where he became a great athlete is, is on recess, on the playground, because recess wasn't about just playing football. Every day I had recess a couple times a day. I was playing something, you know, kickball. I was playing handball and yeah. I was doing all these tag, fun. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's got a cool little story about, about how important it is to actually learn sports globally on the recess platform. Um, and you brought up dropout, you know, we've talked about our, I read about this all, all the time about the high percentage of, of kids dropping out of sports before 13, which is 70%. And I know that there's financial constraints and time constraints, but, and I know this cause I work with the youth as well. Mm -hmm. I understand that majority of people are, or kids are quitting because it's not fun anymore. So mm -hmm. I know we live in a completely different age society when you and I were playing sports, but are we at a point where we have to redefine what fun is or repackage fun? And is there a difference between joy and fun? Like I want to, uh, I want to explore that a little bit. That's a good question. And, and, and I would say, yes, there is. And I think, I, I think it's just that again, that adultification, that fundamental misunderstanding of what fun means to children. Right. Right what they call fun, we might call enjoyment. And what's enjoyment to adults is, you know, pursuing a goal, getting better at it, dealing with the ups and downs, right? And enjoyment doesn't mean that practice can't be really hard and challenging. It just means that you say, and I can't wait to do that again. And so the analogy that I like to use, uh, I, I, I kind of go between enjoyment and pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of adults think that when kids talk about fun, they mean fooling around and 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 not paying attention and and silly games. But that's actually not what kids define as fun. Um, the researcher Amanda Visick from George Washington has done a ton of work in this area, and in all her research, what she's found is that what the top sort of three categories that children define as fun are positive team dynamics, positive coaching, and 
they call it trying your best, but that's sort of like a challenging competitive environment learning, right? right. Not winning, right? But but just you know being challenged, the right coaching environment and 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 a, the right team environment that brings fun. So the analogy I always use is joy and pleasure. And so I always ask people in my audiences when I speak, um, who's ever run a marathon, right? And you'll get, depending where you live, the smattering of hands. And then I'm saying, okay, mile 20 to 26, is there any pleasure, right? And then everyone laughs who's done it because they're like, no, it's the, <laughs> like you have cramps and muscles that you didn't know existed in your body, right? Right. I say, but do you still enjoy running, right? Yeah. And so those are two very different things right? You can enjoy running while not experiencing pleasure. You can enjoy football while not having a lot of pleasure in a really hard practice. Right. And this is what as adults, we have to understand. This is not taking away competitiveness. This is not taking away a great challenging learning environment that is constantly saying, good, now do this, good, now do this, right? And getting and then making people, giving them, helping them become, you know, achieve mastery. But what it's not about is making it, you know, miserable. So it, it, it can be competitive and it can be fun. And in fact, it has to be both. Because as yeah. soon as that enjoyment goes, then the kids go soon after. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I kind of want to just kind of turn the ship a little bit just in, in the direction of specialization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just a couple of years ago, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, his, he was, you know, his son is now a professional um, pitcher right now. But a couple of years ago, when he was playing high school, he was sharing with me like, hey, I, I can't hang out with you this summer because, you know, my son has, he's got summer ball and he's got 65 games in, in the summer. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. He has 65 games in, in a summer. I'm like, is that good for him? Well, he enjoys it. I'm okay, cool. But I mean, what is that sustainable? So when that just kind of, I mean, I understand specialization has been around, but do you think it will ever go away? Do you think there'll be any new laws that will, um, or is there, or do you know of any? Cause it, to me, it just seems that that's outrageous. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think there'll be laws and nor do I think there should be laws. Like, I, you know, I, I think that's, a very big overreach is to sort of legislate, you know, what, what can people do? Because there's, you know, there's, you know, reasons when you look at the ecosystem of youth sports of why do kids specialize? Well, cause they can only afford one. Mm. Right. You know, so to say, Oh, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You now have to afford two is impossible. Right. So um, one of the things that I really am a huge promoter of is multi-sport because all the evidence shows that it reduces injury, it reduces burnout, it reduces dropout. There is no research paper ever done that shows uh, the overall benefits of specialization in long-term athlete development, right? Um, what it, what, um, if you can't have multi-sport, you do still have to have multi-movement, right? Wow. So strength and conditioning, yoga, martial arts, things that teach you to move your body. Now, if you go to a professional soccer club in Europe, you get a multi-movement experience, even though you're playing lots of soccer. They have gymnastics gyms, you do parkour. They develop the athlete 
right? And then they layer on the skills. And in North America, we like to layer on the skills and then hope the athlete evolves later on. And that's why so many kids break down, right? The pitcher's elbow only has so many throws in it before the UCL is going to break. It's just yeah. like, that's, that's what everyone says. And so um, now, now the problem, and I understand this as a parent, is that the system promotes specialization. And once you're out of the pipeline, it's really, really hard to get back in. Mm. So if you don't specialize, you end up out of the pipeline and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. And so these are the two dynamics. All the evidence says there shouldn't be a pipeline that young. And the business of sport says, but to stay in business, there needs to be. And these two competing things right now are, you know, the business of sport is winning. And that's not necessarily what's best interests what's in the best interest of the child in sport and that's kind of sad and scary yeah absolutely well and, and what's your before we get into the coaching the heart of the athlete and, and going in that direction what's your thought on scholarships being offered to kids that are 10 years old 13 years old well technically it was now banned by the ncaa right where mm -hmm. now you know, it started in the lacrosse world where lacrosse basically it took three or four years for the NCA to actually lacrosse coaches had basically almost unanimously said, please help us because we can't police ourselves. Right. Wow. And, and, and said, please, no contact, no offers, no nothing until September 1st of a kid's junior year. Right. And, and so now at least we stop the sort of downward trickle of like, Oh, you're going to recruit 10th graders. I'll go after ninth. You're going to go after ninth. I'm going to go after eighth graders. And it goes down and down and down. So um, lacrosse did this first and now it's extended into uh, other sports. I, I think football and basketball are in the same boat, but they always live by their own rules anyway. Right. And of course there's ways to get around this, but you know, this is a, you know, I think most coaches would tell you that, um, getting commitments from eighth graders means a, it means nothing because the chances are the coach won't be there in five years anyway. Right. Um, B um, why, why, how you would ever commit to an athlete who is not done physically developing, you have no idea what he or she would look like is going to look like in five years. So to, you know, get a commitment for the child means nothing. See, it's a verbal commitment, which is not binding on either side, right? I mean, right. All, all I remember some well-known college football coach saying, I love verbal commitments. Now I know who my competition is, right? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, because it means nothing. I'm not going to stop recruiting that kid because right. it means, it means nothing. And so I, I'm, I just think you're doing such a disservice to, a kid who's never stepped foot on a high school campus to have them choose a college. They're not even in high school. They haven't even taken algebra. Exactly. Right. And, and, and they're making the most important decision in their life. Like that to me is insane. But as the coaches would tell you, if I don't do it, someone else will. And so that's when they really need the NCA to step in and actually be a governing body in the best interest of athletes and stop just cashing the checks and whatever. So that's a whole nother podcast right there. Yeah, I know. Right. But you know what? It's, it's, it's interesting because I mean, like you said, their development, they're not even there. They haven't hit puberty for the most part. And 
Yeah. And I think what back in the day when I started seeing this happen, you know, I played quarterback for 12 to 13 years and I started very young. I also played a lot of sports outside of football, but I put myself in their shoes. Like, what would it be like to be 12 years old and having Clemson come in and offer me? And like, would, of course would, you're going to be enamored. Sure. But there's going to be a lot of pressure and that kind of pressure that I have to now be introduced and exposed to. Mm-hmm. It might be a good thing, right? It might be a bad thing. So I don't know. It just, um, you know, as I was thinking about this podcast, I'm like, I want to pick your brain on that just because I think it, it could do more damage, I think, more than anything. Well, that's, the, I mean, I think the point is not, re- you can argue that it's a good thing because you right. learn to deal with the pressure. You could argue that's a bad thing because we tend to focus on the survivors and not the kids who fizzle out because of that pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone heard of a golfer named Tri Tryon, Ty Tryon, right? Like he's the guy who was the next Tiger, but never made it on the pro tour, right? But at 18, he was the next greatest thing. Right. And he fizzled out. So we, we focus on the tigers and not the 10,000 wannabe tigers who, who didn't make it mm-hmm. um, and hate their dad. Right. Which is right. a whole different story. But, um, it, you know, it, it's not so it's not whether the pressure is a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's the question is, is it a necessary thing? Mm. Is it a necessary thing to put upon a 12 year old? Oh, you're the Clemson commit or you're the and I don't know that Clemson's doing that, but whatever. Yeah, right, like, right. <laughs> you know, you know, is is that a necessary thing? And I, and I think any sports scientist, any psychologist would tell you, no, it's not. And, and the chances of that being detrimental are far greater than the chances of that being helpful to the kid. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. Now, now going to the topic of coaching the heart of an athlete, which to me, I've, I've been around incredible coaches. I've played for incredible coaches and I, I can identify real quick those coaches that just do special things to get to the heart of the athlete. And, you know, and just for my listeners, coaches out there that are listening to this from your perspective, like where, where is the best place to start to, to have this transformational type of coaching? You know, I think first of all, we have to start, we have to start as a society, as sport governing bodies in our coaching education to make people realize this, that, um, sport is about right that coaching is about connection coaching is a relationship business it's not an x's and o's business and the best coaches will tell you that and i think the best coaches you know sing that from the rooftops right you know you look at davo sweeney you look at pete carroll you look at steve kerr brad stevens right they'll they're telling you jürgen klopp and soccer you know coaching is a relationship business yet when we educate coaches all we do is teach X's and O's. We teach defenses and offenses and tactics and strategy and periodization and um, you know physical development. And we leave the connection piece out of it as though, oh, we'll just figure that out ourselves. Yet, you know, here's an activity grant that I do when I do speaking. I'll, I'll, I'll have 200 coaches in a room and I'll give them all five sticky notes. And I'll ask, write down the five qualities of the best coach you ever had. Right. And, and then we'll stick them up on the wall and on one wall, we'll stick all the sticky notes that have to do with knowledge of the sport. And on the other wall, we'll put all the sticky notes that have to do with connection. And in every room, in every sport from Aussie rules, football, to rugby, to golf, to soccer, to ice hockey that I've done this in uh, 90% of the sticky notes are on the connection wall. 
Wow. Right. That's where they are. That's what makes a great coach. And I'm like, so where is that in coaching education? It's almost non-existent. And this is where we're really doing a disservice. So what I would say, um, you know, to a coach starting out is understand that read inside out coaching by Joe Ehrman, read win forever by Pete Carroll, read, you know, Bill Walsh's book, you know, whatever. I mean, uh, you know, and after you're done with those good ones, read my new book, every moment matters, but whatever, like <laughs> that's what it's about, right? Like it is you know, understand connection first. Right. And yes, all the drills and all the technical stuff, it matters. It's important, but it's not sufficient. Exactly. It's not sufficient. You're not missing the magic practice. I promise you that. Right? <laughs> if you can, if you can spell the Google, you can find practices to run. Right. right. You know, and, and, and so it, it, that's not what you're missing. You're missing that ability to motivate, inspire, connect, um, listen, be fair, be Definitely. demanding. That's what you're missing. Oh man. I, I love that you brought up connection, you know, and I'll add to what you're saying. I think from, um, from developing coaches connection, yes. You know, how to build rapport and trust and all that. It's also energy. I think there's a lot of times if um, we fail as humans, I think to, to really check our energy, to understand our energy, how to enhance our energy. And I think, I mean, people are going to see your energy and feel it even before you even say a word. So I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to teach coaches how to actually to, to have energy management in a positive way. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, to, to, to start out my book, I quote in my first chapter, I quote, again, my friend, Joe Ehrman, to be a better coach, you have to be a better you. Yeah. So it starts with you doing the inner work and whether that's physical, mental, emotional, right? How many coaches have not come to terms with how they left their sport, especially people like you and me who may left because of an injury, right? Right. Or your last contract got terminated and all of a sudden you're done. Right. And it's like, so you never come to terms with being a player, you know, and, and, and you never deal with that emotional baggage and all of a sudden, well, how do I stay in the game? Well, I'll just coach. And yet you bring all that baggage to your coaching. Mm. Um, and it's like, wow, that can be really destructive for the kids that you're coaching. For sure. That's a great point, man. Uh, there's so much more I can, uh, we might have to do a part two on this. Yeah. Amen. Uh, but there's uh, there's one question that I love asking everybody before we sign off here. Um, it's about reflection. And I think this is where we do a lot of uh, work as far as our development is when we reflect. So when you look at the moment that you started this journey, right, changing the game project, all the way up until now, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Hmm. I've learned that I think where I've done the most work on myself was that in my coaching journey, the younger I was, the more reactive I was. And so I, I've, I've gone from someone who reacts to someone who responds, right? So mm. my, my tendency was to react. And I'm not saying I don't do that, because of course I do. But I think I've gotten better at taking a breath and responding and looking at what does that athlete need in this moment? Or what does my team need in this moment? Instead of, um, what's going to, you know, usually when we react, it's like, 
vomit, right? We feel better and everyone else feels worse, right? And it's like, you know, and, and, and so I, I've tried to have less of those, those moments. And, you know, one of the things, you know, I still, I still coach, even though I travel a lot. Well, I don't travel right in this moment, but, you know, still travel a lot and speak a ton, but I still coach. And, and so my kids that I coach, I, I did a group of middle school girls for a couple of years. And now I have middle school boys. That's kind of the age I really love to coach. They're also kind of my, my Petri dish of like, um, you know, Oh, this sounds like a cool idea. And, and let me see if I can implement this in my coaching. And some of the things that I've learned from my guests and the coaches that I've met have been absolutely fantastic. And some have been spectacular failures. So, um, you know, so sometimes at the end of practice, I'll say to my kids, like, I didn't work out so good, did it? No coach didn't. Sorry about that. All right, let me see if I can tweak that or do something better. And and I think, so that right there is also being vulnerable. Oh, and yeah. I thought I was taught as a young coach that vulnerability was weakness and that players don't have a say in anything. And what I've learned is that vulnerability is a strength and that when you admit that you didn't get it right, they're far more likely to look at themselves and say, what can I do better as well? Oh man. And again, that's, that's a topic I love talking about. Um, my mentor has an, a beautiful, you know, statement with vulnerability. If you can get so present in the moment and to be vulnerable, he always says victory goes to the vulnerable. We mm -hmm. all know that, you know, from Brene Brown, I mean, it's, it's courageousness. It's, it's being brave. And I grew up, you and I grew up in an age where that was, that was a weak word. Yeah. So uh, I love that you brought that up, but, but I also love, you know, as far as your reflection of reacting versus responding to respond, as I'm hearing you, it's more present. You're more present on how you're moving with a situation versus just reacting and hoping whatever just came out of your mouth or your body language is and response and response yeah. has to do with your training. Yeah. Right. That has to do with what you've learned, your character, um, you how you've understood yourself how you've understood the people you work with that's responding right and and it's the same with our athletes right that we don't want them to react to a bad call we want them to respond to a bad call yeah. right and 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 so who better to model that than us right because if we're right. telling them to respond and all we do is react they're not gonna they're gonna become reactive too right exactly exactly <laughs> Exactly. Well, how can my listeners, how can they follow you on social media, learn more about your project and buy your books? Yeah. Um, so the mothership is changing the game project.com. That's kind of the hub that everything connects to. We're on Twitter. We have a big Facebook group as well. Uh, you just look for changing the game project. I think Twitter's at CTT project HQ. Um, and then the books are Barnes and Noble, Amazon, things like that. My new book for coaches is called Every Moment Matters, How the World's Best Coaches Inspire Their Athletes and Build Championship Teams. And my first book was called Change in the Game. And that was, you know, a guide for parents on sort of the mental side of the game. Beautiful. Well, John, I am going to, um, I'm on record. I'm going to have you back on the show because there's just, there's so much more to to discover and explore with you. And, um, and I, I love your mind. I love how you how you move with everything in sports and what you're doing. So thank you so much uh, for being on my show. Oh, Grant, this was great. I can't wait to be back on because I love these type of conversations. I'll just get a bigger mug of coffee next time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you.